You're listening to a Comics XF podcast. Lazowitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on the big board, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, how's it going tonight? Hey, it's going pretty good. Uh, let me ask you this. Tis the season, or at least the beginning of the season, how you feeling about that there presidential election? Mm. <laughs> you you could have given me anything. You could have given me the Oscars. You couldn't give me anything. It has to go with that. My my only Oscar thought is that best supporting actor is a murderer's row of uh, of nominees. There were some noted. I prefer to say omission rather than snub because snub sounds personal and i don't think it's necessarily a personal thing it it's blind spots it's being unaware of what's in the cultural zeitgeist but i don't think it's a a personal issue it it might be sexism too but that's not necessarily a, a snubbing a person that's being a shithead but nonetheless, I mean, it looks like it's just going to be 2020 all over again. Hooray. Yeah, no, hooray. The, yeah. I mean, listen, I know more than the normal lay person, but less than the truly informed about politics and presidential politics in general. But it seems like the idea that, oh, we're two primary slash caucuses in out of 50 and them's the ball game seems odd mathematically but well well you're you're not gonna basically oust a sitting president in the in the primaries it's just not that's not how that works so right. uh as soon as biden decided to run again that was uh, a fate accompli but I mean, conceivably, the the Republican nomination could could go for a while because proportional allocation and whatnot. Like out of New Hampshire, uh, Trump got eleven delegates and Nikki Haley got six. So I mean, conceivably, it could continue a bit longer. But uh, it, it's amazing. Out of a country of three hundred and thirty million people, uh, we've got. Two 75-plus-year-olds running for president. One is completely, manifestly unsuited for the office, despite having held it in the past. It's amazing to me. There are no words for my just head-shaking frustration at that. Just, it's an, it's an interesting pickle that we find ourselves in. I, I wish we were uh, uh, historians or... Or anybody else living 50 years from now who could just look back on it and just kind of think about it. But no, we got to live through this shit. May you live in interesting times. Oh, fuck you for that. 
What a curse. <laughs> oh, yeah. It is the worst. It is absolutely the, the curse of curses. Give me boring 366 24 7 because we're in a leap year. <laughs> oh, and, and yeah. The, the, the presidential year has to be an extra day. I thought the exact same thing when I realized that. It's like, couldn't you give us an extra day in a year that was not this shit show, please? Uh, but just, just just think about all the wonders we have left. Like, right? Like how the, the Trump trials are going to resolve. You know, if uh, if he gets locked up, how is the American system going to proceed? It's truly fascinating, Matthew. And Lord knows he's doing his best to get locked up for contempt of court at every appearance. Anyone else would have been cited for contempt by now with the way he oh. acts. Oh, absolutely. But see, it's it's strategy, right? Because you can uh, you can stir the shit in court and you can aggravate your base and you know you can fundraise off of uh, off of it all and you know and you can sell uh, awful looking NFTs. Let's not forget that. So uh, many awful looking NFTs. Oh, I oh, I had forgotten all about NFTs and the Trump NFTs specifically <laughs> until just now. It's one of those things that I can't it, it's unfortunately burned into my brain. Truly Trump NFTs are the anti-life equation, Matt. I was trying to come up with some kind of <laughs> but you know, I didn't want to compare dark side to trump because it felt like a slight towards dark side <laughs> well dark side gets shit done the only thing that trump has ever done is bumble fucked his way to the presidency which is you know not for nothing yeah it's shocking tonight we're going cosmic with three stories featuring the new gods including our next stop on the grant morrison run final crisis but first, something completely different and lighter. We're back with Bob Haney with Death by the Ounce. This is The Brave and the Bold, Volume 1, Number 128. The writer is Bob Haney with pencils, inks, and letters by Jim Aparo. No colorist is credited. And edited by Murray Baltanoff and Jack C. Harris. The cover date is July of 1976. When a Middle Eastern Shah is kidnapped upon his arrival in Gotham, Batman must team up with Mr. Miracle, the world's greatest escape artist, to save him. So the other two stories tonight are high cosmic. This one is very much in the model of all the other Brave and the Bolds that we've done for this show. And it is just a wacky little 18-page nugget of gleeful nonsense. Oh yeah, it's absolutely Looney Tunes, and it's uh, it's dated Looney Tunes right there. Uh, you know the the cover as uh, as it says, DC Comics celebrates the bicentennial, and right, and you you didn't even need that to just say, okay, we're dealing with Middle East politics and and the Cold War and and just zaniness, and it's one that doesn't heavily use its guest star until the third act. There's a couple of smaller scenes of Batman and Miracle early on, but it is much more a Batman story until you get to that third act. 
Oh yeah, it, it, the those first scenes almost read as asides. It's like, oh, Batman stumbles on the Mister Miracle's kind of hideaway. Oh, how you doing? All right, I'm gonna go uh, take care of this other stuff. I'll uh, see you later. And it's set in an odd time for Miracle because this is the period after the Kirby run on the new gods has ended, but before anyone was really taking them in other directions and furthering the Uber narrative of the fourth world. So it's kind of like, we're just having a little story with Mr. Miracle. And that's fine because it's, I mean, that's what Bob Haney did with these brave and the bold. They're all only tangentially in any kind of continuity. (laughs) Probably should have brought this. I, I meant to ask this before we started, but as this one is one thousand percent slighter than either of the other stories tonight, we can spend a little time here with the question to you, just to ask. Aside from the couple of brief appearances of some of these characters and some of the things we've read already. Do you have any familiarity with the fourth world as a concept? Zero. Uh, yeah, I know that Darkseid is is a big bad. I'm aware that Tom King has a very well-received Mr. Miracle book that I haven't read. I know generally that Tom King, or uh, not Tom King, Mr. Miracle and Big Barda are, are, are a couple. That's it. That's That's all I got coming into this. Okay, so for the listener out there who is not familiar let me give you a little bit of a rundown which is something i should do at the beginning of any of these themed episodes that are themed around a character or concept i should i keep meaning to like oh in case you are following the show and don't know what the suicide squad is or are only familiar with bane from the dark knight rises let me give you some context So let me give you some context. Ooh, okay. Mr. Miracle, or all of the new gods, were created by Jack Kirby when Kirby came over to DC Comics. Kirby did three series featuring these these characters from what was called the fourth world. Four, if you count Kirby taking Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, where he actually introduced Darkseid. Darkseid's first appearance is in an issue of Jimmy Olsen. Fun. Those three series were Mr. Miracle, which starred Mr. Miracle, who was the world's greatest escape artist and who was a refugee from Apocalypse, one of the two worlds of the fourth world. Ooh, 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 ooh. I know the other one. Uh, uh, New Genesis. Yes, Apocalypse and New Genesis are the two worlds. New Genesis is the home of the good gods and Apocalypse, the home of the evil gods. A truce was made between these two worlds by swapping the sons of the rulers of the world, which is a fairly common thing in you know medieval history. When a war was ended and there was a treaty, you would give a hostage to the other nation and vice versa because you couldn't attack because if you did, they would kill your kid. So Orion goes to New Genesis. Yes. 
and Miracle goes to Apocalypse. Ah, where he so, is tortured. Yes, where he is given to Granny Goodness, who ran the orphanage, which broke the will of the children of Apocalypse to serve Darkseid. So the, the three titles were Mr. Miracle, The New Gods, which was basically Orion's book with little bits and pieces of the history of the new gods mixed in and the forever people who we don't really see here, which was basically Kirby trying to understand counterculture as a guy who fought in world war two. And it's remarkably hokey and fun. The MacGuffin of all of this is this thing called the anti-life equation. Dark side was modeled in many ways after Hitler. Apocalypse is a fascist state, which is, I mean, Kirby was about, was very, very much anti-Nazi, unsurprisingly, being that he was Jewish and fought in the war. And what he conceived of as the anti-life equation, you hear that and you think, oh, well, it's death. But the way Kirby viewed it was anti-life isn't death. The anti-life equation strips you of free will because what is life other than choice and so the anti-life equation if in the hands of dark side would mean that he would strip the will of the universe various writers have not taken this as we'll see in our next story where they just took the name anti-life and kind of went with a more traditional concept of it but that's the, that is the fourth world in a small ball and it's called the fourth world because they're the fourth generation of gods. So there were gods and cycles of Ragnarok and that birthed the next cycle of gods. So these are the fourth, this is the fourth world, the fourth set of gods. Ah, But here we are back with this particular story where basically we have a, a really simple, like, Oh, there's this Shah. He comes to Gotham. He is making a, a defense pact with America. Oh, he disappears. Now, Batman has to find him. For some reason, he needs Mr. Miracle's help because it's a brave and the bold, and that's the way these stories work. And then in the end, it turns out, oh, he needs Mr. Miracle because the person behind this is a remarkably out-of-character granny goodness. Yes, who is kidnapping humans uh so she can attain basically the fountain of youth which they collected the entire fourth world epic into four jack kirby's fourth world omnibuses i've read three of the four i still have to get around to finishing the last one i don't remember anything in granny's character that's like oh i so wish i was beautiful and young again it seems remarkably out of character for that to be granting goodness's motivation. Not to mention Darkseid letting her off the leash to go to Earth to do this for no plan that forwards his machinations. It seems like a, a new god wouldn't ever do anything at the bidding of humans. That That's kind of reverse. Yeah, because every time we see the new gods interacting with mortals, they're playing them. Even if it looks like they are serving mortals, 
it's a ploy to forward their own machinations like oh sure we'll give you all this advanced technology absolutely so you can distract superman and the new gods so we can do something that we're actually planning kind of thing or we need you to find the humans who could give us the anti-life equation so sure have some advanced technology it's, it's very strange it's very bob haney it's very bob haney has an idea and bob haney makes the characters fit his kooky idea which when you just go in you read a brave and the bold you got to accept that it's just gonna be a weird little story they are rarely if ever bad but they are usually ever so trifly and this one was was kind of fun the switcheroo with the shah and then the whoops we uh we boofed that one and then batman lies to the president oh yeah he's totally safe 110 percent safe no worries mr president we got the situations under control totally fine and somehow they bugged the bat phone we never really get an explanation of how that happened uh, oh well, well it was bugged in gordon's office it's not going to be bugged in the bat cave right but it, i guess people could just wander in and bug the bat phone and then we get you know batman impersonating the shah and a crazy how do we kidnap him now oh we're just gonna lift his bed out of the skylight Yes, that is the easiest way to kidnap someone. We all know that, Matt. And then we have a Bond-esque escape through a flooding, sunk World War II destroyer. Ah, yes, my favorite enemy base. Yeah, I mean, this is this is absolutely fun. And I love Batman. Like, all right, Mr. Miracle, you, you don't want to help me? I'm going to make you help me by beating you in an escape artist contest. <laughs> and Bruce flat out cheats. And but he was cheating for a good cause, Matt. Yeah. And I'm okay with that. Thaddeus Brown, the original Mr. Miracle, the, the human that Scott free, when he came to earth became his apprentice and took his you know name after Thaddeus died, has been retconned as one of the guys who trained Bruce. Between him and Zatara, he learned escapology. So there is a connection there that I don't think was retconned in at this particular point in history. Did you just make up a word, escapology? No, that is the that is absolutely the technical term for escape artistry. It is escapology. Amazing. It doesn't sound like a word, but <laughs> it absolutely is. And the first time I heard it, I was like, that sounds made up, but <laughs> in all fairness, all words are made up. Hey, hey, I thought coitus interruptus wasn't wasn't a real thing. And I'm like, <laughs> no way. No way. That's what you actually call that? Yep. <laughs> Amazing. And we don't get a lot of the rest of Miracle's cast either. I mean, we get a cameo from Barda and from Oberon who are his other supporting characters. But the, the third act of this book, the, which is literally broken up into acts as a lot of these brave and the bolds were is 
basically a big old set piece. And it's fun as all hell. And Aparo draws the heck out of it. As I said, when we were talking about Idiot Root and Penguin Affair a couple of weeks ago, think about it, this is 1976. Those stories were 24 years later. And while Aparo might not have been drawing Batman every month for those 24 years, I bet if you weighed how many months he did from, say, the mid-70s through the mid-90s versus the months he didn't, he would have drawn Batman more than he hadn't. Just the, the longevity of that career. Absolutely amazing. 16 years, not 24. Math, Matthew. Simple math. Um, but still, he, he would have been drawing Batman. I mean, we saw him draw, he drew Mr. Wayne Goes to Washington, the last arc on Batman before No Man's Land, which means he was drawing Batman in the fall of 1998. So that is 20 plus years later. Yeah, it's three decades. Yeah, it's a really impressive career. And one thing that I wish they would release it eventually, Tomorrow's Publishing, which does the magazines Back Issue and Alter Ego, all these magazines about comic history, and has done various books spotlighting artists and runs and titles. They were going to do a book about Aparo's career, and he passed away. So they canceled the solicitation and wanted to add things about the end of his career, and then they just never published the book. Yeah. And that was 20-ish years ago now. But I always was hoping they would eventually find the files and be like, boy, we should really finish this up and release this book because the people who would care are either too old or we're, we're going to get to a point where there aren't the people who are familiar with Aparo's work to buy this book. So let's let's get it out there because I would love to read that book. Fascinating, fascinating career. You go back and you look at, I mean, aside from Batman, his work with the Phantom Stranger, with the Spectre, Oh, the Fleischer Aparo Spectre stories from the 70s. That was when they, they went hardcore into the Spectre as ironic punishment department. So it was like, oh, you're a tailor who killed someone. Okay, I'm going to turn my hands into giant scissors and chop you up. <laughs> like EC Comics level ironic punishment. It's when the code started losing its teeth a little. And so you could do that shit again. Fun, fucked up comics. But we're not talking about the Spectre tonight, although we, we should at some point. We should do some more Batman Spectre stories. But we, we have we have a lot more to talk about before the night is out. So I think, unless you have anything else. That we do. I do not. I, I This has got to be, though, one of the all-timer like, head fakes for the cover. Because you see Batman and Mr. Miracle are, like in this frozen death trap thing. And then you actually get into the story. It's like, oh, it was just a friendly bet between the two of them. Uh, if, if I get out of this freezing escape trap before you do, you have to help me. And it's, uh, as Matt mentioned, it's where Batman cheats. But removing all specter of danger out of this cover. But it's time to Brave and the Bold, number 128, Death by the Ounce on the big board. We are at 366 stars in the big board. Getting near 400. God damn. 
Number one is the post-crisis origin of Batman, Batman Year One. At number 50 is Identity Crisis, not that one. The story where Tim Drake officially takes up the mantle of Robin. Coming in at a family-friendly number 69, it's Batman's mystery casebook, Science and Encyclopedia Brown. At 100 is It Takes Two Wings, the Batman Green Arrow political discourse issue. Down at 150 is Going Sane, the story where the Joker thinks he killed Batman and thus becomes boring. Joe Care. At 200 is the Justice League New Frontier special. 250 is the Zero Hour crossover. 300 is Demons, the Batman Adventures annual, inspired by some of the other work of Jack Kirby. And down at the bottom at 366, Curse of the White Knights. Sucks balls. Okay, so this is trifle-tastic. Yeah, um, we got the, not the issue uh, right before, because numbers are, are hard. Uh, but we got an issue nine issues later, Hour of the Serpent at 264. I'm sure this is going to be somewhere around that. Yeah, because you look at that, and then a few below that at 270 is You Can't Hide from a Dead Man, the Dead Man issue. So both of those are there. I think I like this more than You Can't Hide from a Dead Man. That's got some really nice Neil Adams art, but that story, even by Haney standards, is all over the joint I'm trying to think how i feel like this one lines up with hour of the serpent which you know that's the demons that's another kirby creation do you think that that one has a certain wacky charm when you get that final confrontation where etrigan has to turn into a mongoose to kill a giant snake yeah that's pretty good that's pretty good so trifly it's it's just, it's right in that area and it's so much in that area is just sort of like, oh, well, this is a wacky little story. Do you have any particular thought on where this might go in there? I mean, it's it's right in there. Like, it's definitely below Three Ghosts of Batman at 258. And it's definitely above Leaves of Grass at 276. Between 270 and 260. I mean, I think Batman of All Nations is probably better at 261. Yes. Snapper Car the Super Trader at 265 is more important to the history of DC Comics as it's the one that moves the Justice League out of their cave headquarters. And O'Neill has some interesting ideas in there but it's hamstrung by the fact that they didn't really do multi-part stories at that point. I should remember what Golden Streets of Gotham is, but I don't. That's the Elseworlds set in the 19-teens. It's a lot about labor. Oh, yeah, I probably like this or like that better than this. It's weird. Yeah, and below that, below that is Resurrection of Rachel Ghoul, which is one of these books that has eight parts, should have been six, 
Four of the ones we got were pretty good. Four of the ones we got were not that good. You want to say between Golden Streets of Gotham and Resurrection of Rachel Gould? Sounds good to me. So the new 268. All right. Our second story of the night is Cosmic Odyssey. This is a four-issue miniseries. The writer is Jim Starlin with pencils by Mike Mignola, inks by Carlos Garzon, colors by Steve Olaf, letters by John Workman, and edited by Mike Carlin. The cover dates are December of 1988 through March of 1989. The new god Metron's research into anti-life has released a universe-wide threat. Four aspects of an entity embodying anti-life have escaped their realm and are attempting to bring the full entity to our universe. Now, a small group of heroes must race against time to stop them. All the while, Darkseid has plans of his own. Dum, dum, dum. I always thought, is there a character in a story I would trust less than Lex Luthor? Darkseid would have to be it. Oh, absolutely. The fact that Batman is the only one to be like, we should probably have somebody watching this motherfucker sort of beggars the imagination, especially because High Father, his ancient adversary, is there and he's like, yeah, I guess I just got to work with him on this one. Yeah, yeah, we're just going to have to make this work. You have how many other new gods? You couldn't have kept one of them in the lab at all times. You know, Big Bear of the Forever People, Fast Back, any of these weird Kirby-looking guys just standing there, like, looking at him. Hey, what what are you doing? Stop that. Don't touch that. Don't put it down. No, stop. This is the first of two wild, big, cosmic stories that we're going to be talking about. But... The way this story is structured, as cosmic as the the stakes are, the structure keeps it maybe not grounded, but intimate. Yeah, and Starlin packs it with a lot of exposition. It almost has like a, a real classic vibe to it. It's like every page is like, it's very clear what the characters are doing very clear what their motivations are. There's nothing left to either your imagination or confusion. And one thing that really struck me is that Starlin will put up a challenge for the heroes and then he'll immediately solve it. Like I loved how Green Lantern and Martian Manhunter arrive on this alien planet and it's it's stricken with plague and they're like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? John Stewart's like, oh, I got the cure. It's right here. No problem. It's taken care of. Plague never comes up again. And that one planet, you know, there's what I like to call the law and order rule. Where when you dun, see dun. The, when you see the credits to an episode of Law and Order, and it's like random guy, random guy, random guy, Martin Short. It's like, oh, okay. So Martin Short is the sex creep in this SVU. Yeah. He's the only one in the credits whose name you you know. This is the inverse of that. 
Because, like, okay, you got Thanagar, the planet of Hawkman, Ran, the planet of Adam Strange, Earth, and Zanshi, a planet that's never appeared before. Oh, that's going to blow up. Yeah, exactly. Guess which planet is going to have to be destroyed to raise the stakes? Hmm, probably the one that you've never heard of before. <laughs> you know, going in, that if anything, if there's anywhere where there's an actual chance of something going wrong, it's that mission. We are covering this, despite not mentioning him in the little synopsis there. Batman has a fairly integral role in this story. It starts out in Gotham. You get Batman hunting a rogue apocalyptian in the early chapters. And then he's one of this small group of heroes that is called to New Genesis. I do sort of scratch my head as to why, if the universe is going to be destroyed, they didn't just kind of call an all hands on deck. Why it's just this small group of heroes. Starlin never really addresses it. And honestly, it's probably just to keep the stakes of the series or the, the cast of the series manageable. Because it's Batman, Superman, Martian Manhunter, John Stewart and Starfire. And then you throw three new gods into the mix with Orion, Light Ray, and Forager. And then on New Genesis, it's Darkseid, High Father, and Jason Blood slash Etrigan during one of those periods where they had been split. And Jason Blood's like, why? Every time I get away from this thing, I have to. Can't you just let me die? Please, just let me die. Die not bonded to this horrible yellow demon. He smells so bad. And he rhymes all the time. Yeah, and, and Star- Starl, unfortunately, I think, knew his limitations and had Etrigan speak as little as possible. Yes. But the Batman parts of this story have some of the more interesting character beats. I actually think the stuff on Ran with Light Ray and Starfire, that's the most sort of paint by numbers. There isn't really a strong character arc or any real conflict between them and Adam Strange, who they wind up teaming up with. The other three sets have something going on in the dynamics of the characters, either in there or that bounce off something that happens later. Because Superman and Orion, it's oil and water. Because Superman is Superman, and Orion is the son of Darkseid and does not have any qualms about taking life. No. And thus, you have them having to deal with Orion thinking Superman is a weakling and Superman being shocked at the barbarism of Orion. John Stewart and Martian Manhunter, it's not a good look for John Stewart in this story. He's very cocky and he winds up paying for it. And the destruction of Zanshi is one of the defining stories 
for Jon Stewart. It changes his character moving forward. Interesting. I wouldn't, I, I, I certainly very smaller stakes here, but I, I suppose in terms of that carrying forward, this is a lot like Killing Joke in that you have kind of this book that is off doing its own thing, and yet it leaves that kind of lasting uh, mark on a character. It does. And there's very little else that comes out of this because we talked about it before that Kirby's idea of anti-life is this sort of loss of self. Here, anti-life is almost antimatter. It's this force that can't enter our world. It is sentient. It is sort of an elder god. It's got a very Lovecraftian, eldritch sort of vibe to it. But it also has this feeling of being the the Christian god and the Christian trinity and that it can be separated and split up into parts. Yeah. And then the final Batman and Forager, they get along fine and but you see more of Forager. Gotta change your costume. This kid can't wear that white shit around here. It's gotta be dark. I'm not used to teaming up with young boys in bright yellow, red, and green. No, not at all. No. Gotta be dark. But there you get Batman respecting Forager and seeing how noble he is. And that played off of Orion, who has a prejudice against the quote-unquote bugs, the insect hive folk of New Genesis. And it leads to a really great moment with Orion smugly at the end after Forager has sacrificed himself, making some snide comment about, huh, I guess even a bug can do something, and Batman just punching him. And it's a strong moment to show who Batman is is and how lacking in so many things orion is batman in this era does just a lot of punching with uh with people who say things that uh, he doesn't like yeah we're so this is december 88 into 89 so starlin is writing batman at this time this is releasing at the same time as the last two chapters of death in the family so arguing here that bruce's somewhat dark reaction to things is this is the period where he is more reckless because of jason's death because punching a new god he probably broke every bone in his hand you would think. Orion can go toe-to-toe with Superman. So that's... But it, it, it also decked him. Yeah. So... Maybe, maybe if you punch a god on New Genesis, it's different than punching him somewhere else. Maybe. Maybe High Father was kind of like... Kind of boost you a little because he needs to get <laughs> my kid needs to get punched in the face this time he really needs to just be knocked down a little bit my boy and this is also one of two stories tonight where batman uses a gun and 
I feel like it's earned in the second and not so much here. Yeah, well, you know, if the only thing to kill a space monster is a space monster gun, I mean, what else are you going to do? I, I will say, I thought that earliest chapter was setting us up to Batman hunting this guy through Gotham, like this, you know, uh, apocalyptic soldier who was left behind. Which was really kind of cute. He was like, oh my god, what am I going to do? I'm stuck here in Gotham. I'm so scared. <laughs> Dark, Dark side, help me. I'm scared. Uh, but then, you know, Batman just waxes him and then stuff happens. I thought that would have kind of been an interesting story. Like a monster story, but, you know, the guy is uh, is from Apocalypse. And like, what happens if he runs into Killer Croc in the sewers? That That's a big old monster fight that'd be fun to watch. I would absolutely watch that fight. Also, just for a timeline sense of things, this is still a year before Gotham by Gaslight when it comes to Mignola's evolution as an artist. So we are very early in his career, but he's at this point really... Like if you look at his early Marvel stuff, he's sort of trying to fit a little house style there. Here, he's cutting loose. This is recognizably Mignola. Yeah, and it's good stuff. Yeah, oh, the monsters, the apocalyptic soldier monsters look great. There's a panel. Uh, oh, uh, if you are sensitive to discussions of... Uh, suicide and suicidal ideation skip forward uh, 30 seconds to a minute but there's a panel where John Stewart after John Stewart has gotten back and he's contemplating taking his own life because he can't live with having been responsible for the destruction of a planet because he got too cocky and Martian Manhunter basically reverse psychologies him into re-embracing life. There's just a wonderful panel of Martian Manhunter with this little smile on his face that is so Mignola. And it's just a great panel. And I love Mignola's Batman. I wish he had done more Batman. There's only two or three other Mignola Batman stories. A Legends of the Dark Knight one-off. And the Batman Hellboy Starman miniseries. But wait, 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 wait. Time out. Batman Hellboy Starboy miniseries. Starman. Starman. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because I think the first issue is Batman teaming up with Starman. And the second is oh, it's been so long. I know the three of them don't really interact. It's I want to say Batman and Hellboy in the first issue and Hellboy and Starman in the second. But it's been it's been a long time since I read that. Just like that Aliens versus Predators versus Terminator. Yeah. Sure, you can't find it. Oh no. Oh no. But I'm sure there's a way to find it that I mean I've got the floppies somewhere. But oh, of course you do, Matt. Yeah, because it's a Batman comic that came out since 1985. So, yes, yes, I do. But, yeah, it, that would be something to cover someday. Just Mike Mignola, James Robinson and Mike Mignola. 
I don't know how much philosophy is underpinning this story. Starlin is known for a lot of deep philosophizing in, you know, his his Dreadstar and in Warlock and in some of the Infinity Gauntlet War Crusade stuff. This one is just sort of a cosmic smack up The discussions of anti-life and things like that aren't really all that substantive when it comes to philosophy. No, and I think the anti-life is treated more more as like a physical manifestation in this story, certainly, than it is in the next one. And I think that kind of makes it less interesting. Yeah, no, I think that this is by far the less interesting use of anti-life. Here, as I said, it's just, it's like Cthulhu and four little hybrid Cthulhu monsters that he sends out as his heralds. It's like, oh, stop them and you stop Cthulhu. And there you oh, go. Oh, 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 but for Cthulhu to win, it has to build uh, a big bomb. Yeah, and we stopped it by painting it yellow. Yeah, yeah, it's the same bomb as on the other planets, but this one's yellow. And the guy who paints it yellow, like you get the picture of the bomb and you see the, the guy holding like a bucket of paint and a paintbrush and that's a weird like i gotta imagine that that guy who painted it yellow that's somebody that mignola knows and he drew him into this comic because he's just sort of standing there smug with a paintbrush and a bucket and it's just kind of like okay john why didn't you just pick up something that was not yellow in the room and smash the control panel on the bomb you're not affecting the yellow thing. You're affecting... Uh, I don't know. It's that... yellow. I got scared. <laughs> That's poking at the yellow weakness, the yellow impurity in the Green Lantern rings, which they got rid of back in the 90s, which is good because it is kind of comical. Should have been Alan Scott. It could have been a bomb made out of wood. Yeah. Oh, drat! My one weakness, the wooden bomb! I'm pretty sure I made this joke when we talked about Alan Scott the last time, but I'm going to do it again because I like it. You take a number two pencil, yellow wood, you could kill any Green Lantern with that sucker. I think I'm pretty much good, and we're going to be spending some time with the next one. Oh boy, that means it's time to Cosmic Odyssey on the big board! Top 200? Yeah, I think we're somewhere in the... The one to 200, between 100 and 200, probably one, okay, we're at 150 right now is going sane. I don't think this is better than going sane. Nah. Going um... sane is, is trying to say something and has some cool concepts with Batman and Joker and what they're trying to be. This feels very similar to Batman 89 at 173 in that it's got some interesting ideas. Execution is a little rough in spots, but it's still it's a good enough read. Yeah, I still think 89 goes above it because Mm -hmm. I think the stuff with Two-Face there, the execution on that is stronger than any of the execution of any of the ideas here. Agreed. I'd put this above Penguin Affair at 181. Yes. 
I'm actually looking at at 175, we've got Batman Grendel. And again, I like Batman Grendel, but part of my appreciation of Batman Grendel is knowing all the Grendel stuff, not knowing the Grendel stuff, and realizing that not knowing the Grendel stuff makes the book suffer a little, puts it where it is. I think not knowing anything about the new gods, you're probably able to appreciate this more than you're able to appreciate Batman Grendel not knowing anything about Grendel. So I'm thinking... I think that's a good point. Absolutely. I I think it might be the new 175. All right. And now on to the the main event. Our final story. Oh, boy. Uh, all right, I'm going to go make a drink while you read the art credits here. Yeah. Our final story of the night is Final Crisis. This is DC Universe number zero, Final Crisis numbers one to seven, Final Crisis Superman Beyond numbers one to two, Final Crisis Submit, and Batman Volume One number 682 to 683. The writer is Grant Morrison with pencils by... George Perez, J.G. Jones, Carlos Pacheco, Doug Monkey, Marco Rudy, Matthew Clark, and Lee Garbett. Inks by Scott Koblish, J.G. Jones, Jesus Marino, Marco Rudy, Christian Alami, Doug Monkey, Tom Nguyen, Drew Garachi, Norm Rapmund, Rodney Ramos, Walden Wong, Rob Hunter, Don Ho, and Trevor Scott. Colors by Alex Sinclair, Pete Pentazis, Troy Avina, Dave Barron, Richard Horry, and Guy Major. Letters by Nick J. Napolitano, Rob Lee, Rob Clark Jr., Travis Lanham, Steve Wands, Ken Lopez, and Jared K. Fletcher. And edited by Eddie Berganza, Adam Schlagman, Mike Martz, and Jana Laslin. The cover dates are June of 2008 to March of 2009. There was a war in heaven, and evil won. The gods of Apocalypse are incarnating on Earth. Anti-life is running rampant. The heroes of the DC Universe are on their back foot. One hero of the Trinity will lose themselves to anti-life. One will fight with everything they have to save reality. And one will fall. Problematic Creator Watch, Eddie Braganza, still noted sexual harasser, Eddie Braganza. This a 20 minute to 30 minute discussion of this book cannot do this dense a book justice. No, it is a stunning, stunning epic of just just incredible scale. And this is obviously my first time reading it. And my very first impression is that Getting experience with the anti-life equation, I came away with this, not just an appreciation with for this, but much less of an appreciation for Deceased. Because it seems like Deceased is just this book, but just in a kind of a dumbed down, watered down form. And just reflecting on that, I was like, this this tried to be much more than that. And uh, it's got so much going on. And I think I was really put kind of put in the right mindset by a forward. I read this in trade and the the forward is from a pop culture writer. And he just says like, 
just sit back and just kind of enjoy the nonsense. That this is just big, weird, wacky comics that it has kind of obviously a serious point to it. Just sit back and don't worry too much about it. And I was able to get into that space and just really kind of like, wow, this is this is a lot to take in. This is the Ulysses of DC Comics. I'm not necessarily likening Morrison to Joyce on a grand literary level, but this is a book that is so <laughs> dense with <laughs> reference and with the understanding of at this juncture, as this is 2008, 70 years of DC Comics lore. This takes the new gods. This takes aspects of all of DC's history and weaves them into this huge epic story. And Morrison very specifically cherry picks certain elements to play off each other. The first part opens with a character from, I don't think he ever, he had his own, might have had his own series, but I don't believe so. He appeared in Showcase, back when Showcase was a, a tryout comic called Anthro, who was the, the first boy. It was a caveman hero. He apparently did have his own six-issue miniseries after appearing in Showcase. And then by the end of the first issue, as time, even by then, is starting to sort of collapse in on itself, Anthro, the first boy, meets Kamandi, the last boy on Earth, a Kirby creation set in a dystopian future. So Morrison is saying, even in that first issue, that I am encompassing the entirety of DC Comics history in this story. And I, I have to explain my laugh earlier. I'm sorry for interrupting uh, because this has nothing to do with anything. But you brought up James Joyce and I can't help but think of farts whenever when anybody mentions James Joyce. So that explains the laughter. Uh, but yeah, the, the scope of this project is is insane. And Morrison still is able to bring in their own work, right? It, it, but it, but it doesn't it doesn't feel forced, right? Because we have uh, Batman, you know, talking about Doctor Hurt. Like so, this you know, you said we had to read this before we continued on to the Morrison run, and it it's firmly within that while also addressing this wider world. Just sitting here, we're we'll get to the, the Batman stuff in this book specifically. And we'll probably spend most of our time here discussing that as this is a Batman podcast after all. But there's just so much going on. And the thing about this that works while so many of these other cosmic epics that we have read fall short is that at no point does Morrison forget that despite these being people in spandex costumes with godlike powers, they're all still people. 
so much of this is grounded in Superman, in Superman trying to save the world, Superman trying to save Lois, Mm -hmm. Superman devastated by the loss of his best friend, Superman doing things beyond imagining because he's Superman and it's what Superman would do because he is the best of us. Superman Beyond is the trippiest freaking comic. One of the trippiest freaking comics I've ever read. Oh, ain't it though? Like by the end of it, Superman becomes a mecha question mark? Or this sort of God Superman that was built to fight the ultimate evil who is a cosmic vampire monster who comes back at the very end. But it's still, as insane as that story is, the main characters there all have very clear motivation outside of crazy high cosmic. Superman is there to save Lois Lane. Ubermensch is there to find his lost cousin. Ultraman's an asshole. Even who becomes an asshole vampire. Yeah. Even the monitor is there because she knows that there is this evil and it's an evil that she has a direct personal history with. It's not just cosmic. It is cosmic, but it's cosmic rooted in the personal. To what extent does this reset things in the dc universe because if i if i get my my timeline right right we have we have have first crisis on infinite earths and then infinite crisis and this is final crisis and look i don't i don't know my flashes I, i i don't right but i get the sense that this was a big moment for the flash yes because this this is the return of barry allen Barry'd been dead for 22 years. He died in Crisis on Infinite Earths. So this is the return of Barry Allen from the dead. And he was he was one of the two people who for years were like, nobody's ever going to bring back Barry Allen. Nobody's or Jason gonna... Todd. Exactly. And oops, there they both are. But I don't think Morrison's plans were ever able to really reach fruition because when you think about it this ends in march of 09 we have two years until the new 52 Mm. morrison went from here to finish their batman run which they were in the middle of when the new 52 happened and i believe that after that was gonna be done once they were done with batman they had planned to go back and do a stories from the multiverse and they wound up doing that during the new 52 but because of all the changes that had happened because of the new 52 that didn't have the teeth it would have had 
if it was within the same universe and the same continuity as Final Crisis. Multiversity winds up being uh, bouncing amongst a few of the different Earths of the 52 universes. And when you get to the end of this, there are things that are set up that never really get to pay off. You don't get to really pay off Nix Wotan, the monitor who is now immortal. Again, that pops up in multiversity. Never does it get to pay off Renee Montoya and the Global Peace Agency. Never does it get to pay off the idea that we are in the fifth world, and thus this is the world where over time man will evolve into gods. There's a line towards the, the last issue where Nix Wotan, the monitor, calls forth the forever people of Earth 5, and the super young team, these Japanese heroes, pop up. And so the the forever people were, again, these, these hippie gods of the fourth world. Here, it's young Japanese culture, fame-obsessed kids who are now this sort of new vanguard of some kind of new culture as gods. Morrison never gets to really pay any of that off in any major sense which i think is a shame because they had all these crazy ideas these wild ideas that earth 51 had become the home of all these crazy kirby creations again none of that really winds up paying off and that's publishing that didn't pay off because dc came up with this crazy publishing initiative that in the long run didn't really work as well as they would have hoped. It was short-term without any real long-term benefit. Just like uh, 5G would be introduced and then vanished some years later. 5G got, you know, what, two issues of anything? And they're like, yeah, Dan Didio's gone and we didn't think this was that great an idea, so that's just not going to happen. What do you believe of the rumors? Scott Snyder helming up a DC version of the Ultimate Universe. I think it would have been interesting, but we've seen so many reboots of the DC Universe over the years that I don't think it has the same punch as Marvel, who had never done that, and then suddenly was like, hey, we're giving you this whole other version of our universe. And we also, I mean, we had Earth One, which granted was also a never really worked out. And that's, I, I have to admit, I've never read Morrison's Wonder Woman Earth One, and I really should. And we'll we'll use this momentarily to segue into the Batman stuff here. Wonder Woman gets the short end of the Trinity stick in this book. You Just got, like an injustice. Yeah. You've got Superman who, if you really boil this down, this is a Superman story. This is about mm -hmm. Superman. And there are some absolutely beautiful, gets your heart moments with Superman here. The end of Superman Beyond where Lois was 
injured in a bombing and is going to die and there's nothing he can do except he's been told that there is this substance that can save her but after he goes through all of this to to get this prize they're like we monitors can bottle it but there's no container that can take it down into your worlds and in the end the i can yeah, the one thing that can hold it is Superman himself, and he saves Lois with a kiss. And the very end where the the miracle machine, the, the device that can make thought reality, Superman's wish fixes everything. And well, what did he wish for? What else would Superman wish for? He wished for a happy ending for all of us. And the, Superman sings the note that destroys Darkseid. It's all of these moments of Superman transcending, I want to say transcending mortality, but at the same time, it's because he is so human and so mortal that he is Superman. Anytime you take that humanity out of Superman, he's not Superman anymore. Mm -hmm. All of these alternate versions of Superman across media right now, Omni-Man... Homelander, Hyperion, insert any one of them. Uh, what was that freaking movie? Uh, Brightburn. The thing about all of those characters is none of them have the humanity of Superman. You could argue that Homelander does in a way, but Homelander has the worst of humanity and he is just the worst of humanity. Well, Superman has all the best of humanity. But Wonder Woman is basically like, okay, you're being made into one of the female Furies and you are the carrier of the Mortococcus superpower stripping virus. That's your whole thing. In the end, you get one really cool moment where you use the lasso of truth to purge anti-life from humanity, which is a cool moment but it's one moment in this much bigger epic. Yeah, you spend most of the time riding a dog and killing things. Yeah. But then we have the Batman stuff here. Oh, boy. So I, I read this in trade, and it's uh, it's titled in trade as uh, the butler did it, and the butler did it again. And they are, uh, to me, reading this, like the emotional core of this book especially uh the second story and i i take it these were batman six whatever and six whatever whatever the two uh, issues right after r.i.p ah that would that would make sense again continuing in in our morrison run it is a retelling of basically all of batman's history while batman is questioning like is this real and then there is a separate thread of like Batman as not Batman, like Batman living just a Bruce Wayne life. And then, you know, he's he's strapped to this machine and you've got these minions of dark side, like trying to basically extract and weaponize Batman. And then, of course, their their plan fails. I just I love the line at the end. Like, it's so good. <laughs> what man could use his memories as a weapon? It's such a great line. It it's is the goddamn a, Batman. Such a great line. 
reading this now, a couple of weeks after reading that god-awful Tom King Booster Gold Batman story, this basically is doing the same thing. Yeah. Only it's treating Batman as a hero. He's still mortal. He still has doubts and he still suffers through them. But he's Batman. He looks at this pampered life he has and he still brings himself around and he as there's the episode of Batman the Animated Series that we covered for Chance to Dream, where, again, it's Bruce in this machine that has put him in a world where he's not Batman, where he's just Bruce Wayne, and his parents didn't die. And I have to imagine Morrison had some influence from that, because there are enough similar beats. But again, he looks at this pampered life where he's his parents are alive and his father is kind of disapproving and his mother is overprotective and he, he looks he's at a it. doctor and he looks at it and he's like no this isn't right and he fights his way out of it and as you say, he uses his own memories to destroy this clone army because no one else could survive the trauma of being batman they're scratching their eyes out. It's so good. And it's so much about what makes Batman Batman. And it's got enough of sort of the dark alternate future without just like reveling and rolling around in it. Like the Tom King story was basically like, here's this shit. Watch me roll around in it. There are moments of darkness here, right? Like, Bruce stumbles on to Dick Grayson's body. Dick Grayson was killed by the Joker and his body was never found. And turns out Joker in, you know, a cosmic coincidence, Joker hid it in the Batcave or what would be otherwise be the Batcave. Like that's really dark, but it's, it's a fleeting moment, right? It's not something that we dwell on. And it's used by Bruce to pull himself out it's him saying there is this darkness in my life and i have to i have to accept that i have to take that in because i can push through it and in the end he inspires the lump this apocalyptian psychic entity to stand up against its masters because he inspires it to. It sees who he is and what he's done. And it chooses to attack Makari and Simeon, the two mad scientists of Apocalypse. He is Batman. And there is a great, great moment in the last flashback. The only scene we hadn't seen before this the moment when Bruce goes back to the Batcave after R.I.P. before Final Crisis number one, where he's talking to Alfred and he says something about his obituary. And it's just this 
moment where he says, I'm trying to find my note where I specifically called it out. Alfred is talking and he he used every heartache to better himself in the service of others. And Batman says to Alfred that he's sure that his obituary will talk about who killed Batman, but it won't talk about who kept him alive. And it just, again, cements how important Alfred is to the world of Batman. And then we, we get just two more moments of Batman in this because we get him standing up to dark side. And this is where him using a gun, I feel, is justified. Because he absolutely calls it out. I swore a solemn oath to not use firearms. But this one time against the god of evil, I can make an exception. I'm gonna I'm gonna shoot a god. Now let me let me ask you this, right? So this this story kicks off with the death of Orion. Who shot Orion? Dark side in issue seven, when Superman is confronting Darkseid and the flashes are running towards them, Darkseid fires that gun at Superman. Mm-hmm. The flashes move the bullet so it, or the Omega effect in the bullet so it doesn't hit Superman. So Darkseid fires the gun that the bullet travels back in time and kills Orion. Because that that is a key fourth world mythos was that Darkseid and Orion, one was destined to kill the other. And Aha, okay. Darkseid, the reason why Darkseid has no body at the beginning of this story is because Orion had actually won their physical battle and killed Darkseid. But Darkseid was still alive as a floating consciousness. So while Orion was the last new god alive, because Countdown to Final Crisis kills all the new gods over the span of the series, he is then killed by the bullet that Darkseid fired in the future. Because all time is sort of collapsing in on itself through the end. It's very Morrison, your eyes go crossed. And who is Turpin? Dan Turpin is a member of the Metropolis Special Crimes Unit, the equivalent of of, uh, Gotham's major crimes unit. He was Maggie Sawyer's right-hand man in Metropolis. And at this point, he had retired and become a PI. He was a Kirby analog. Jack Kirby created him, and he was very much Kirby's stand-in in this, like, these Orion stories where it's like, What's all this God stuff going on here? I'm a guy from, you know, the the bad part of Metropolis. I'm, you know, basically the guy from Brooklyn. So So it would make sense that he would be at the center of this story. Yes, exactly. Okay. And I love that in the end, you know, you could have had the tragic bit where after Darkseid possesses him, he dies. But no, you see him alive and Superman with him after Darkseid is purged from his consciousness, that not even Turpin dies, that Superman saves him. Of course, this is where Batman dies, which sets off Batman and Robin with Dick as Batman and Damien as Robin. 
and will eventually get us to the return of Bruce Wayne, where Bruce is traveling forward through time, skipping along different eras of DC history. From what I gather, there was one scene that DC let Morrison kind of go hog wild on this and interfered very little except for one scene that they insisted that he add and i don't remember if it has ever been confirmed but i'm 99% sure that it's the final epilogue in this book that they couldn't let this go without saying oh no Bruce Wayne is still really alive. Don't worry, he's still out there. Because in the ah, end, that that would set up the skipping through time. Okay, right. that Bruce. The final page is Bruce back in caveman times, and Return of Bruce Wayne is him slowly over f- six issues moving forward in time. It's caveman Batman, Pilgrim Batman. Pirate Batman. The last two are, you know, P.I. Batman. And then when he makes it back to the present. But I'm forgetting one. Because I know he's in Caveman Times in the first one. And then it's the Pilgrim. It's the Pirate. Oh, Wild West Batman. P.I. Batman. Present Batman. And that's another one where Morrison's like, okay, we're going to have Vandal Savage in one part. And we're going to have the Black Pirate in one part. And Jonah Hex. And we're going to do some of the stuff with the Black Glove in the ones when he's P.I. Batman and meeting his Kane relatives before we get back to the present. But that sets all of that up. But I I feel like that scene, there's, looking at annotations, there's some who think it's some of the other stuff before that. The, you know, hey, let's just lay out how all of humanity gets back to Earth stuff. But I feel like that epilogue just is too pat. No one who knows comics really believed that Bruce Wayne was gone forever. No, of course not. Especially if you know your new gods and know that he was struck by Darkseid's Omega effect, which, yes, it can turn you to ash, but it also can push you through dimensions or time. The Morrison Mr. Miracle miniseries that was part of seven soldiers that was part of the run up to final crisis has Shiloh Norman, the second or third Mr. Miracle struck by the Omega effect and him living every alternate permutation of his life. The Omega effect doesn't usually kill you. So if you know that you don't need the, Oh, here's Batman back in the past. It's still a really cool ending. And him etching that cave painting does actually come up in some of the search for Bruce Wayne questions of whether or not he's really dead stuff that will take place in that intervening period 
from the end of this through Return of Bruce Wayne. But I just felt like that was DC editorial being like, you you really need to make it clear to everybody that Batman's not really dead. He he did put the, the D in DC Comics. He did. I don't think that there's anything more that we can discuss here without going down any number of rabbit holes that would make this conversation go on for hours and hours because there's just so much here so i i'll i'll say this and the the you know these are stories i we haven't read for the show yet but i found this far more digestible than metal or its sequel on the same scope the same sort of ambition but this I think could just be read and enjoyed much more than I think maybe we've seen with contemporary attempts to, to do a similar thing. The one other thing that to bring up and as you kind of joked about it, when it comes to the art credits here, there are a lot of artists and this was a book that was plagued by delays that you've got seven issues over nine months. And while it was designed to do one, two, three, two-month break to allow J.G. Jones, who was supposed to be the sole artist on this book, to catch up because he's not fast, there were then other delays and Superman Beyond wound up being weirdly delayed as well. Because this is July of 08, August of 08, September of 08. The first three came out on time. Then there was the one month the one month skip that was supposed to be... Superman Beyond was supposed to be a, a one-shot, but it wound up getting split into two issues because there was too much story. And so then you get November, December, January... And then two months before the last issue. And when you look at it, that last issue is the only one that Jones doesn't touch at all. And it's Doug Monkey with one, two, three, four, five, six, seven anchors. Yes. Which means that I feel like they were hoping Jones could do it. They were hoping Jones could do it. And they were like, it's not going to happen. Hey, Doug, you're faster than either Jones or Carlos Pacheco, who had come in to do a lot of the fill-ins earlier in the book, and Monkey was doing Superman Beyond. Do you think you could do this so this last issue can actually come out? And just send us pages, and they just got everybody they could. They just went into the bullpen and got every inker possible to just ink pages as quickly as possible to get this book out. And while the art styles, it's not seamless. Monkey is a very different artist than Pacheco, than Jones. They're all such strong artists that it doesn't look shoddy at any point. And nowhere is it is a, a disconcerting drop in quality. Yeah, which 
is good because we've seen stories where it's like, okay, we need to get this out. Let's just get somebody to draw this comic. And that's always a turnoff. Absolutely. So I think I'm good. Oh, that means it's time for Final Crisis on the big board. Top 100. I was thinking top 50. That's that's tough. You will not get me to disagree with that. I think there's so much to this story. It does not beat R.I.P. at 15 simply because R.I.P. is more of a Batman story. I think looking at the 30s, I think it would absolutely fit in there. This could have made it into the 20s if it there was more Batman in it. But just because of the nature of this list and this podcast, a story that really... The trade is 384 pages long. Batman is on maybe 100 of 400 pages. Because he's, he's we got off- 30 really good Batman pages, though. Oh, yeah. No. I mean, I think the two issues, the 44 pages, the 222 page Batman issues in there are so strong. And the confrontation with Darkseid is great. I don't think he probably doesn't, he doesn't even hit 100 pages in here because he's off the board for issues three, four, and five and Superman Beyond and Submit. A big chunk in the middle where there's just no Batman, maybe one page. Okay, I'm going to give you an opening an opening bid here. Okay. I'm going to say 25. Ooh, okay. I was looking at 35 and oh, thinking, right. okay, it, it has to be better than 35 because the 35 is Batman 66, the lost episode. Lynn Wayne, like totally amazing creative team, but still like the core of that story is still kind of a trifle. Hmm. So um, I got nothing against 25. I think I might've been talking myself into the twenties, but here's the thing. Number 30, Hikatia. It is also a story that is not inherently a Batman story, but Batman is better portrayed here than he is there Mm -hmm. not that it's a bad story at all it's obviously not because it's up at 30 and it's a it's not a bad portrayal of batman it's just batman is antagonist there it can't go above nightfall part one at 22 because that is just such a key story in the batman mythos and shows you something about batman you know how how he can be worn down how he can be beaten our current 25 anodyne that catwoman ed brubaker darwin cook story great story beautiful art but again batman is a minor part of it and is a little out of character with his responses to, you know, well, these sex workers, they made their choice to be criminals and it's just going to sort of happen. I think, again, Batman is more in character here. How about then 23? 
right? Right below Nightfall and above Crimson Mist, which is an absolutely stunning conclusion to the trilogy, but doesn't really break any new ground that Red Rain did not already break. I'm thinking 25 only because I think Half a Life at 24, that Montoya story is so emotionally powerful and is such an important and so different a work for when it came out, which is why I said 25. I can move it up to 23 if you, if you really feel strongly. No, no, not at all. I'm uh, this is, this is going to be go down to the first as I was higher, not in terms of our sentiment, but I proposed a higher number on the board than you did for a Morris story. Uh, I'm absolutely good with 25. I agree about what you said with Crimson Mist. And I, in retrospect, I'm not sure if Half-Life might have sort of been above Crimson Mist. But Batman is, again, such a minor part of Half-Life that I think that's probably why Crimson Mist is ahead of it. But I think 25... so much ass. But I I think 25 is the spot for Final Crisis, which, again, is a fine showing we have got a solid top 25 oh maybe i i can't i can't speak for you know the full 350 uh but we got a solid top 25 yeah no i think you could give any of these top 25 to someone and be like you want to you want to read a really good comic a really good comic that has batman in it Here's a good freaking comic. Oh boy. But that, that does it for tonight. Next week, we're reading three different versions of the origin of Mr. Freeze. We would like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grote, Josh Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum, (laughs) Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley, Go Yutes! Sam Hopper, John Wickham, Robert Secundus, Bobby Tubots, Tim Rooney, Giorgio Sergioli, David Wheel, Alexander Wheel, Matt McThorne, and, McThorny. Dan, and Dan Ofer for their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible, and the Comics6F.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash batchat with Matt and Will, where you can get shout outs, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear of more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at mattlaz1013. And I'm at Will Nevin, and I'm never leaving, but I'm going to bed. Good night, Huntsville. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat roundup of new Bat Books, for my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.